Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is June 10th, 2022. This episode is a recording from a webinar we hosted on June 6th entitled The Real Geopolitics of Top Gun. It features our Geopolitical Intelligence Group member, Top Gun pilot and instructor, Lieutenant General Bob Walsh. Rachel Washburn is our moderator. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to Academy Security's geopolitical webinar. This is a little bit different of a topic for Academy. I'm really glad that you're here with us today as we discuss the real life takeaways of Top Gun Maverick. I am joined by General Robert Walsh today, one of our geopolitical advisory board members, a former fighter pilot and Top Gun instructor. Today, we're gonna be looking at some of the real world implications of the movie Top Gun, what are some tech takeaways of the film, and of course, an update on Ukraine. Um, Given your background, General Walsh, 30 plus years in uniform, fighter pilot, Top Gun instructor, I'm really excited to have you here today. My name is Rachel Washburn. I have the distinct privilege of helping lead our geopolitical intelligence group. And given that I will be piloting today's discussion, I guess that makes me Maverick. Talk to me, Goose. What was it really like to be a Top Gun pilot? Well, thanks, Rach. I'll start with, here's, just to prove it, there's my original Top Gun helmet. For those who've seen the movie, that's the uh, Top Gun logo there. So it was uh, it was quite an honor to be a, a Top Gun pilot. Uh, I had been flying uh, F-4 Phantoms and then transitioned to the F-18. And I went through the class as a student uh, while the movie was being filmed in uh, 1984. 586 and went through there as a student and came back, uh, had already been flying F-18s then as a student and came back as an instructor in 1986 when the movie was just being released. So a lot of the staff instructors had all been in the movie, helped make the movie. uh, And it was really kind of an exciting, uh, a great time to be there. Um, What I would say is is Top Gun's one of those organizations, if you've ever been in it, it's a a gold standard organization. And once you've been in an organization like that, it kind of just marks you for the rest of your life that you kind of want to have high standards and try to achieve them everywhere you go. So I would say that's what I would really kind of say what I got out of Top Gun uh, and all the great people and high standards they all held as the best of the best in the, uh, the fighter pilots in the Navy and the Marine Corps. Tell me how realistic the original and the new movie is as far as the capabilities of the aircraft, how the team dynamics work, um, and and really how capable the pilots and aircraft are. Yeah. You know, one thing I would start with, Rachel, is, is how the school came about. I think that's really important to understand. If you look back at World War II, our kill ratio was about 14 to 1. So for each aircraft we lost, the enemy, whether it was the Japanese or the Germans, lost 14. Um, When we went into the Korean War, that number was about 12 to one. And then in the middle of the Vietnam War, we were at about two and a half to one. Pretty remarkable on inferior aircraft, which we considered, you know, North Vietnamese pilots, not probably as trained as well as the German pilots of World War II, were defeating us or, you know, had a kill ratio that low. So they formed the school Top Gun and, and really focused on the enemy, what are their weapon systems, how their aircraft flew, how their pilots flew, what they thought about, and actually trained against that kind of threat. And, and Top Gun was formed. 
and later in the war, the kill ratio went back up to 13 to one. Um, so I think that's a remarkable, you know, success that the school showed that it taught. Um, but I think a lot of it is interesting to look at is how they break down, you know, at the school, the enemy, who the enemy is, you're an intelligence officer, uh, a former army intelligence officer, really studying what the enemy, how they think, how they act, how they're trained what weapon systems they have, what aircraft they fly. And in a number of cases, we were actually able to get our hands on some of those aircraft and really fly against those aircraft and learn how they flew and how best to fly against them and where they had an advantage and where the U.S. You know, was in a disadvantage and vice versa. And so therefore you learned your enemy and tried to always take the enemy to the place where you had the advantage. Uh, some of it was pilot skills, some of it was technology. And what does, what's the application of that skill set in the current security environment? What, what is it, how has it been utilized since the end of the Soviet Union, since the end of the Cold War, and how are people being trained right now? I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the school has evolved and changed. But when you go back and look at it, and when I, when I see the school, when I talk to the instructors, when I talk to the students that have gone through the school, really the framework is all pretty much what I just kind of laid out. The change may be technology has advanced. Um, and so the technology continues to advance. There's more technology than the aircraft that were flown back when I was you know, flying in the, you know, um, in the 1980s at Top Gun. Um, finishing up flying, you know, in, in just a few years ago, but the technologies continue to change. So understanding uh, sensors, weapons, where, how the enemy's uh, radar and sensors and missiles uh, operate is probably more important today, but I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, it's, it's the pilot or the air crew in the plane and really being trained to that high level, which is really what I think Top Gun really brings out. It's understanding yourself and training to that high level uh, and bringing up that speed. And I think that was one of the key quotes in the movie for those that have seen the movie. It's not about the aircraft, it's about the pilot. And we could talk about that some more and some in examples, but it really is more about the pilot than the aircraft. Yeah, I actually think that would be an interesting place to start. Obviously, the modern aircraft, it's just unbelievable how much tech is involved, how much AI is involved. And so I think it can be easy to discount the human element when you're putting so much software into the hardware. So can you talk about how important the, the human aspect is, the human touch to being a fighter pilot, how it remains? Yeah, I think a key part in the movie that you saw was, you know, it's like in business, it's all about relationships. So you saw that relationship in the movie, if you've seen between Maverick from the original movie, and he really is sort of a Maverick. And there's characters out there in the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Air Force and other services that are like that. Um, but the relationship he built with one of his um, former Top Gun fellow students who now went on to be a three-star admiral leading, leading all of the Naval Air Forces. You know, he developed a great relationship. So when the, when the Navy was in a, a, a crunch time to go on a mission that was really dynamic and required somebody that could really lead it and train people, he went to somebody he was very comfortable with. Uh, 
And the same thing that you can see that as, as Maverick gets the responsibility of being that flight leader to try to train the team that's gonna go in and conduct this mission, it's all about building a team. And that teamwork is so important. You kind of watch it. It's not all about flying. They socialize together. They play sports together. And it's building that teamwork up. And I know as a young pilot being brought into, you know, my first squadron uh, and really kind of being uh, lack of experience and hanging on to a lot of those Vietnam veterans that I was flying with at the time and trying to learn everything that you could. There were those kind of maverick you know, officers out there, those pilots that, you know, maybe they were a little bit different. Maybe they weren't the most squared away officer in their uniform, but they could fly the hell out of a uh, an F-4 or an F-18. And you wanted to hang out at the bar with those guys, listen to every word that they, they did or said. Uh, you wanted to, you know, you push the schedule writer to try to get you on the schedule to be their wingman so you could learn as much as you could from them because you knew if you could milk the knowledge out of them that someday you might get that opportunity to be like them or maybe get the opportunity to go to the Top Gun school. How quickly did you see, did the United States military see the impact of that type of training? Um, you mentioned some of the kill ratio and how it changed over the multiple conflicts, but how quickly after implementing Top Gun instruction in the schoolhouse did you see an improvement? Yeah, I think it's two things. It's not just about individual pilots, but those pilots are we call them the patch wearers. They wear that Top Gun patch on their on their uniform. Uh, they are the 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 trainers, the teachers. So the Top Gun instructors are the trainers of the trainers, and then they go out into all the squadrons in the Navy and the Marine Corps and teach them how to fly their aircraft. Um, they, they teach them by manuals on how we fly, what the technology is, what the right procedures and tactics and how the enemy fights. They, they teach them all that. But so much of it about is standardization. And what Top Gun does really well is they look at a problem, they figure out what the threat is and how you operate against the threat, whether it's an enemy formation, it's an enemy uh, pilot, it's their weapon systems, but you learn what the best way to crack that nut to solve that problem. And then you standardize it and you teach that and you continue to teach new tactics and procedures as the enemy or the threat changes. And it's those top gun pilots or air crew that are out in the operating forces that are deploying across the globe, you know, in the Navy and Marine Corps, in the movie, they're coming off an aircraft carrier their job is to train those pilots in those squadrons to be standardized. And that I think is the most important thing that they did. Our tactics were very standardized. They're very fluid. They're very decentralized, allowing free thinking young American pilots to think on their own. They can get commander's intent. They know what their mission's all about. They know their aircraft. They know the systems. They know the threat and they're let loose to kind of go out and operate in accordance with the standards, but be free thinking in how they do that. We don't see that in other countries. We certainly didn't see it with the Soviet Union, how they flew their aircraft. And I think it also ties into what we see in Ukraine today. The Russian army, very centrally controlled, doesn't operate the same way the Top Gun pilots or the Top Gun instructors fly their aircraft. Yeah, can you elaborate on that more? First, you have some really interesting stories about 
assessing, viewing, and being exposed to Soviet hardware and technology. Um, so I think that's an interesting short story that our audience would like. And then, yes, what what do we know right now about how our adversaries, our competitors, and even our allies, how they um, embrace different techniques and philosophies around fighter pilot? Yeah. No, um, Rachel, I think, you know, one of the things I'd say is, is, like I said, is we trained against the threat. And when I was going through Top Gun, it was Soviet aircraft were the threat we were training against. And like I said, we got our hands on some of those aircraft and some of our pilots flew those aircraft against us. And we taught our students on how to fly against them. We learned exactly how they maneuvered, where their strengths were and, and where their weaknesses were from a technology standpoint. And, and I remember getting the advantage of having flown the F-4 Phantom, which was a Vietnam era aircraft and moving on to F-18s and being able to fly both F-18s for the, the Navy and the Marine Corps, but also as an adversary pilot flying the Air Force F-16 aircraft. Um, really, you know, at the time, fourth generation aircraft ahead of what we were flying as third generation F-4 Phantoms or the MiG-21s and MiG-23s that the Soviets were flying. And we could see that flying against them where we had the advantage. And certainly when I stepped into the F-18, it was a night and day difference of technology in what the F-18 had be, be compared to those earlier Soviet or Russian made aircraft. And I felt like I had a complete advantage as long as I followed the playbook and flew to the standards, I was always going to win. Uh, and Top Gun taught me that. Um, it was interesting when the Russians then developed the MiG-29 aircraft, which became a competitor to the F-18 or F-16 uh, or Air Force F-15. And when we watched that airplane fly, it could fly faster than my F-18. It could pull more Gs than my F-18. And there were a lot of us that were really concerned about how are we going to be able to go into combat against that kind of threat. Um, and then what happened was there was a couple of air shows, the Paris Air Show and the Farnborough Air Show, where the Russians unveiled the aircraft and started to be able to sell that aircraft globally and they wanted other people to buy it. And we had the opportunity at Top Gun to get into the cockpit and see that at the air show. And when we looked inside of it and saw what the aircraft had, it just was really reassuring to myself that as I saw the, the gauges, the instruments in it, and it was like the technology in this aircraft was much more like the F-4 I used to fly, not the F-18 I'm flying today. And knowing that technology was such a driver in everything that we did, if you put the right pilot with the right training and knows the weapon systems, it was a huge advantage that we always would have over the MiG-29 and what the, the Russians were developing. Um, roll that clock forward now to today. You know, today, the, uh, the lead aircraft that we have is the, uh, the F-35, fifth generation aircraft that we have today. Um, and as the Russians or the Chinese really stole a lot of the plans to that aircraft, a lot of our research and development money went into it. Uh, we're able to get the intellectual property. And if you take a look at today, a Chinese made J-31 it looks almost exactly like an F-35 today. And so my question is, knowing back then that the Russians technology was never as good as ours in any weapons system or capability, 
whether it was uh, tanks or aircraft or, or ships. Uh, it was no surprise when their aircraft weren't as good as technologically advanced. Flip that to the Chinese today, and I'm not sure the same answer is going to come forward. We're not sure exactly what's in that technology. They're very entrepreneurial. They have a lot of advantages in technology. You look at things like their Made in China 2025 plan on how they're focused on technology. And over the many last years, 20 years or so, we've helped train the Chinese military to operate more like us. We've brought them to our exercises. We've let them watch how we operate off our ships, how we fly our aircraft. And now as we're in this competitive and adversarial relationship, how much have they really learned? We never did that with the Soviet Union in the past. Dad, that is an interesting question. Um, I think before we hit a quick update on Ukraine, and of course, without any, giving any spoilers, um, first, want to open up to the audience, please, if you have any questions, type them into the Q&A portion. We'll get to those after the Ukraine update. Um, but General Walsh, I, I want to know what you thought of the film. Did you enjoy it? Did you think it was realistic? What did they do um, well? Uh, what did they do wrong? Yeah. The one thing I thought was the mission, you know, you can always pick apart mission apart, but as the fighter pilot and talking to my friends and fighter pilots, active duty fighter pilots, we all looked at it and said, you know, the mission is pretty realistic. So from a geopolitical standpoint, there's been a number of Israeli attacks against Iraq and Syrian nuclear weapons development capabilities. And this is one that the Iranians, even though the movie doesn't call it the Iranians, the, the aircraft are coming off aircraft carriers, which would be very realistic around. The terrain looks very much like Iranian terrain. It's an undeveloped nuclear reactor. And there's F-14s. And so the F-14 is a very interesting part because when I was an instructor at Top Gun, when the F-14s were getting rid of some of our older aircraft and going to newer versions of the F-14, there were Top Gun pilots I knew that had flown F-14s into Iran and given those planes to the Iranians that the Iranians are still flying today. So the mission uh, in where the movie was really good is the first movie was all up at really high altitudes. And if you think about dogfights at high altitudes, sometimes you don't get the same perspective. It's like an airliner flying along at 600 miles an hour. You're kind of floating along in the sky and you don't really know you're going that fast. Put those aircraft down in canyons below the terrain and now you're feeling and seeing what a pilot's feeling with ground rush, as we call it, going past you. And it literally had me squirming in my seat and grunting and breathing hard because I'm seeing what they're going through and I feel like I'm in the cockpit with them. They did some phenomenal filming in the movie. The technology of today's filming is much better than the first movie. And if you look at it, the real actors that are in back seat are going through all the G-forces uh, that you experience. One of the ones I thought that was really good is that as they come out of their low level, what we call a pop-up attack, and they hit the target, and now they have to pull up. They're pulling nine Gs coming out of this target area, and in the practice up to it as they're doing this, the pilot uh, uh, um, blacks out, and we call it G-induced loss of con consciousness, or G-lock. It's something we train to, and you could just see this is real. That actor is going through it. He's getting what they call tunnel vision as everything kind of grays out. 
And if you don't aren't careful, you'll black out and snap and you'll pass out. Uh, one of the things that I think is that pilots train to is they go through a centrifuge and they put you in the centrifuge every year to train you into how many G's you can take, but also to know when you start to see that tunnel vision, it's time to start releasing the stick and coming off it because otherwise you'll black out. Because in the movie, they black out and they almost lose an aircraft uh, in that. And a lot of times being in those centrifuges that I've been in, that you feel like, boy, I did pretty good. They ask you, how did you think you did? You know, I did great. And then they show you the video and you're sitting there with your head hanging on the side, you're drooling over yourself and you've been blacked out for over a minute. You know, so those are the things I think that made that uh, film very realistic by taking it down. And I think that the mission that they flew was something that, you know, if you had to assign somebody, you took a group of top 10 pilots, they would be the ones that might be able to achieve that mission. Very much like our special operations forces would do a mission like that. Yeah. Well, a great uh, promo for the movie, if anyone hasn't seen it on the call yet. Um, so just a quick pivot. Obviously, you know, in the first movie, Soviet Union's the adversary, we're seeing um, Russian military techniques and platforms in full effect in Ukraine. What um, would love to hear kind of a quick update on that conflict right now, where it stands um, since it's been, it's been a couple of weeks since we've updated our uh, clients and partners. Sure, I, I think the first thing to look at is the strategic miscalculation by Vladimir Putin and, and really the Russian military and, and him listening to the Russian military, you know, um, and I would say, if you kind of look at it where he's at today, he failed at splitting NATO, failed at taking uh, Kiev, you know, in his main attack, and he's got all these massive sanctions against him. So it's almost been a complete disaster for Russia at this point. And I think it's really putting Russia in a very dangerous position. And I think that's why you hear a lot of the discussion of what's the way out of this and, and how does this end? Um, strategically, from a military standpoint, they've obviously bogged down. They tried to attack on far too many axes. And one of the things that I think kind of that tying back to the movie Top Gun is what we learned from the Soviets. And a lot of it was after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and we started training with a lot of the Eastern European pilots. We had known this, but until we actually trained with them and saw them, how um, centrally controlled everything they did. They couldn't really act on their own. They're not like young Western thinking you know, servicemen. They don't have an NCO Corps that they trust down at lower levels. Everything kind of gets coordinated at a very central location. And therefore, that's why you see these results that you keep hearing of these, all these generals dying, I mean, or getting killed in, in action. We don't have that happen because we rely more on our young officers, our enlisted, our NCOs to lead from the front. And what we're finding is, you know, large columns bogging down, supply not making it where it needs to go. All this stuff has to do with the same centralized thinking that we saw with the Soviet Union. So part of that is I think we miscalculated really on how bad they really were, how much they hadn't changed. Reverse course on that, the, the uh, Ukrainians 
kind of moved slowly over to our way of thinking and operating. We brought them to a lot of exercises. We have continued to train them. We've been training them in the country since 2008-14 to think and operate much more like we do. But we also taught them that, uh, to work much more on what would be effective for them. They're not going to do large force-on-force -force operations against the Ukrainians. They're conducting much more what we've taught them as infiltration, hit-and-run tactics, using precision-guided weapons and operating much more in a fluid, decentralized manner. And I think that's part of the success of the Ukrainians, along with their will uh, of defending their own country. And so I, I, I leave it at that, Rachel, that uh, this is going to be a tough one to see how this ends. It's going to take uh, some time here for things to kind of stagnate to the point where both sides want to come to the table. And right now, certainly Vladimir Putin is not willing to come to the table. He thinks he can win this thing. And winning to him right now may be taking that eastern region, the southern region, consolidating, and then there would be a phase two after that. There's no question when you talk to the eastern European countries, in the Baltics, in Poland, in Romania, those countries know that there's going to be another round of this. Whether it's in a few months or a few years, they know it's going to be coming. And therefore, that's why they, they're looking to fight this war in Ukraine and not in their own territory. Um, we actually had two questions from the audience on this topic. Um, first, just to continue to build off of the, um, just the philosophy of command and mission command structure within the Russian army. Do you think that centralization extends to the air as well and how their pilots um, function and operate? Yes, all indications are that's what we're seeing. They, they have not done what we would have done of gained air supremacy first. You kind of see how we've done that in Iraq or Afghanistan, different threats, obviously. Um, but that's the first thing that we do. And what we're seeing now is they have not done that. Uh, and they don't have a lot of confidence in their capabilities. Much of the airspace is still contested. And what you're seeing Russian pilots do, race across the border, launch some missiles you know, inside Ukrainian airspace, and then race back into their safe havens. Um, so I think a lot of that is um, uh, uh, a lot of the lack of command and control capability. And I think a lot of, too, the losses, some of the losses that they've taken, uh, certainly along their helicopters, but also their fixed wing, is they've been flying down very low altitude. Um, that will tell you the technology again. I mean, U.S. pilots in Iraq and Afghanistan were not ever flying down at low altitude because we didn't want to get hit with... Uh, you know, infrared surface to handheld hand -held missiles. I mean, there literally was a floor you couldn't go down below unless it was an extremist situation with troops in contact on the ground. I mean, the rest of the time we stayed up, our system supported everything we did. And so I think that brings into question, why are the Russians down there? And I think it's a lot of their systems and weapons don't operate as accurately as ours do. And then there's a lot of discussion around Russia's end state in Ukraine, but what is Ukraine's end state? Russian forces have been established in the Donbass in the east for you know nearly a decade at this point. What does the end of the conflict look like for Ukraine from their point of view? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, President Zelensky has been just a phenomenal uh, leader backbone for the strength and will of the, the Ukrainian people. So leadership starts at the top. I mean, he didn't leave the country when Kiev was threatened. He stayed there. Um, so it starts there. And, and now, as things have stagnated, and they, you can say that they defeated the Russians 
in their attempt to take Kiev, and that strengthened their will even more. Uh, with the continuous supply from the West of arms, it's getting them stronger and stronger all the time. Um, with that said, the Russians have a much larger army, much more weapons, uh, and so that's why I think Putin's far from willing to back down. But Zelensky at this point feels like the goal that stated is to kick the Russians out of his country, even past the borders that were there, not even borders, the occupied area from, uh, previ from 2014 on. So that's a stated goal. We'll see how they're going to be able to, to do that, uh, where Russia continues to make gains in that eastern region. So that's going to be a very difficult problem for the Ukrainians to solve, to be able to push We have time for a couple out. more questions. But at the same First, time, can you provide you any thoughts on the, the ghost of Kiev pilot? Just draw the line and say, okay, well, let's end right now. I think the last th reports I saw that prior to this invasion, the Russians had occupied 7% of the Ukrainian um, uh, ground, and now it's up to 20%. So you could see is, is this death and destruction campaign that Russia's put on Ukraine and President Zelensky and his people, I don't think at this point they're willing to accept losing more terrain than they had before and the massive destruction and loss of life. So they're going to want to push back as far as they can, and we'll see how far that goes and ends up. Somewhere in there, there'll probably be a stalemate where negotiations will have to occur. I remember hearing that narrative at the very beginning, Rachel, uh, and I think it was a good narrative from everything I've seen since, that it never really played out that there was a pilot like that, but it was really a good story to um, get the Ukrainian people having more resolve and, and strength in their military. But I did hear, and I, did, I do expect that there are individual cases of those pilots going up against Russian pilots. And I think if you look at it, the Russian Air Force outnumbers the Ukrainian Air Force about 10 to one. So when you look at that, pretty brave pilots to go up against that. And obviously some of it's working because we haven't been giving them high altitude surface to air weapons. We've given them low altitude and the Ukrainian pilots have been out there operating. Uh, and contesting the Russians. So I think a lot of that goes back to what we said before. Those Ukrainian pilots have been being trained by U.S. pilots and how U.S. pilots operate. And I think it shows that the old Russian way of centrally controlling their operations is far different than a bunch of Ukrainian pilots that really go out there freewheeling and attack as necessary as we would do the same on our side. Um, and so one final question before we close it out from the audience. Um, any thoughts on the future of Russian presence in the Middle East, especially given Turkey and Jordan's um, request for safe zones in Syria? Yeah, I think, I think the Russians are going to always try to maintain a presence there, uh, Rachel. Um, they're going to be disruptive in any way they can to be U.S. global power. And we're seeing that more and more from the Chinese. So the place that we've always been located over the last 20 years, as you know better than anybody, Rachel, with your service over there, has been in the Middle East. So Putin has been testing us throughout the Middle East just to be a disruptor to glo U.S. global power. Um, and I think that will continue. I think you also see Putin and Xi Jinping contesting us. They're operating today in military exercises in the Pacific theater. 
uh, again, contesting U.S. global power. So I, I think that's Putin's um, way of operating. But I think right now he's got his hands pretty full right now in Ukraine. And you can see by the Baltops naval exercises going into Baltic Sea right now, not a lot of contested uh, actions going on by the Russian military, because I think in a lot of ways they've got their hands full on the ground in Ukraine today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, sir, really appreciate you joining today's call, enlightening our audience about some of the, uh, the real life aspects of being a Top Gun pilot. And of course, uh, and very importantly, an update on the um, events in Ukraine. So thank you to everyone who joined today. Um, there were a few questions that were not answered. We'll be sure to follow up after the call. And if you think of anything throughout your day that you would like Academy to um, provide some insights on, please reach out to us at info at academysecurities.com and we'll follow up with some insights. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and for all your support. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel and General Walsh for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time today. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I appreciate your time today and look forward to speaking with you again soon.